Please turn with me in your Bible to Ezra chapter 9. I'm going to go ahead and read the chapter for us, all of chapter 9. Plan is to finish Ezra next Sunday and then make our way back to the Gospel of Matthew. Just to remind you, if, if, if you're visiting or if you, if you weren't here last Sunday, Ezra has been sent back to Jerusalem with about 5,000 or so people. And his job, remember, he studies the Bible, he makes his aim to obey the Bible, and he wants to teach the Bible. And he's been sent by the pagan king, uh, Artaxerxes, back to Jerusalem to do just that. And when Ezra gets back, everything seems to be going well for the first few months, and then he gets some bad news. And that's where we move into Ezra chapter 9. This is the word of the Lord, Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with, with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the word of God, the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat of the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, 
Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples uh, who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant, nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I pray that the example of Ezra in this chapter would be just richly stirring to our own hearts. Uh, there are just too few people in the world like, like he is here in this text. I want to be more like this, Lord. I want to see sin, whether in my own life or the life of someone I love, and to be grieved, to be truly broken over it, to plead in prayer to lose my appetite as Ezra did, and to go without food because of the sins of those he loves. God, I pray that you would give us that kind of affection and care and true biblical love for others that Ezra demonstrates here. God, I pray that you would give us prayers for others that would be passionate and persistent, that we would not grow weary and give up but that you would work through our fallible prayers to accomplish your great purposes in this world, God. And I pray that Ezra would be an inspiration to us even now. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've divided uh, the sermon into four points, and I went ahead and put them here on the screen so you can see them because there's a lot, of, a lot of words here for these four points, so I thought it might be easier to see them. Uh, point number one is the first four verses, Ezra discovers sin among the people. Verses five through seven is point number two. Ezra confesses Israel's past sin. Uh, number three, Ezra confesses God's faithfulness. That's verses 8 and 9. And finally, number four, Ezra confesses Israel's current sin. Now, if you look at that, you can see how points two and four are very similar because they both have to do with Ezra confessing the people's sin. But you'll notice that the first one, point two, is, Ezra, is focusing on the past history of Israel. Point number four is focusing on what's happening right here in the moment when this chapter occurs and also, just to remind you where we are in history, I've shown this map before, I'll show it again right now. Uh, for the first six chapters of Ezra, we spent most of our time in those, that, that early section uh, over here, about 22 years. But here's what's interesting about what was happening while Ezra, while, before Ezra was even born and when Ezra arrives. Apparently in this section here, this large area I'm going to put in red, that large rectangle in red, during that section is when the sin occurred that we read about in this chapter. No doubt the sons and grandsons of the first returnees, remember the 50,000 that returned uh, in the year 538 BC, they've been back in the land now for quite a number of decades, and they've got sons and grandsons, children and grandchildren, who begin to intermarry with unbelievers, essentially, people of the land. And when Ezra arrives, uh, Ezra arrives uh, uh, here where the arrow is, Ezra arrives at that point, and for now decades... Uh, about a hundred people in the, amongst the people of God have intermarried with the uh, people of the land, and uh, that is the scene on which Ezra finds himself. So let's begin with point number one here. Ezra discovers sin among the people. Look back with me at verse uh, one. After these things had been done, 
Now, I'm going to stop right there. There's no, there's no time indicator right in front of us, but if you, if you look around carefully, you will find a time indicator here. We are told in chapter 7, verse 9, that they arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. Okay? The first day of the fifth month, chapter 7, verse 9, says they arrived in Jerusalem. First day of what month? Fifth month, okay? Now, if you look carefully, look at chapter 10, verse 9. Look at chapter 10, verse 9. This is just happening a few days later after chapter 9. This is Ezra 10, 9. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month. So we went from the first day of the fifth month to the 20th day of the ninth month. Ninth month. We're talking about, it's about four and a half month period or so uh, that we're looking at. So Ezra has been home in Jerusalem for four and a half months, about, give or take a few days, okay? He's been back home for four and a half months. I think we need to know the, the time. God gives us a time. It takes a little, little, little searching to figure it out, but then you realize, okay, four and a half months. What has Ezra been doing? Look back at chapter 8, verse 36, the last verse of chapter 8 of Ezra. This is right when they get back into the land. Chapter 8, verse 36, they also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. So let me just, I don't want you to get lost. I'm going everywhere, okay, to try to put this together. So if you look back at chapter 7, uh, look at verse 25. This is one of the jobs Ezra was given. This is Ezra 7.25. The king Artaxerxes told Ezra to do this, 7.25. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of God that is at your hand, referring to the Torah, particularly the Scripture, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river. That's the Euphrates River, by the way. All such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. So he's going to be teaching and instructing. Then look back at chapter 7, verse 10. This is the verse I mentioned already. 7.10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Okay, we put all that together. Bible study takes time, doesn't it? Because you've got to look over in this chapter and find this verse that it sheds light on this other chapter. And it take, you, you put it together, you start putting the pieces together, you see it. Okay, here's what we're seeing. Put all the pieces together. The Persian king, Artaxerxes, sent Ezra back home with about 5,000 people. And he has a job. His job is to appoint magistrates who know the Bible. And if they don't know the Bible, he's supposed to teach them the Bible. That's part one. Part two is he loves the Bible. He studies it. He wants to do it. And he wants to what? Teach the people. So is Ezra teaching the new leaders? And is he teaching the people? Is that what Ezra came back to do? Teach the leaders. Teach the people. Teach the leaders. Teach the people. And how long has he been doing that? Four and a half months. Okay. Is the word of God starting to take effect amongst the people? Yes, it is. Remember, we saw this with Haggai. In 24 days, Haggai was preaching, and what happened? The people began to repent. God's word does God's work. Well, here's Ezra back in town for four and a half months, and he is no doubt teaching faithfully God's commandments. He's teaching all the ordinances of the Lord. He's teaching faithfully what God has commanded and what God has promised, and four and a half months go by, and suddenly there is a conviction of sin. And certain leaders among the people come forward confessing sin. I think it's interesting. The people who confess sin in chapter 9 are the officials. And guess whose sin they confess? The official sin. Same word. 
The officials come and they confess the sin of the officials, which I think includes, I don't think this was just like tattletale, okay, kind of thing. I mean, it's not wrong to talk about someone else's sin in a certain setting, but I think they were probably including their own sins. The officials come forward and say, there is sin among us and some of us are guilty and we've been held accountable by God's word. We need help. What do we do? Let's see what the sin is in more detail. Again, chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, four and a half months have passed, the officials approached me, Ezra is now speaking in the first person, and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. He mentions the Canaanites and all the others. Verse 2, for they have taken some of the daughters, their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race, or literally the holy seed or offspring, has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands, and in this the faithfulness of the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. Well, we'll talk about this in just a moment, but first thing I want to say is this. Matthew Henry uh, mentioned this in his commentary. Matthew Henry is always tremendous. If you have his commentary, it's free online. Matthew Henry, you cannot go wrong with his commentary on the Bible. It's always superb. Matthew Henry says this, when Ezra first showed up, did Ezra see the sin of this, these sinful intermarriages that, that he was about to see? Had, did Ezra notice them when he first showed up? There is no indication that Ezra knew about this before he finds out right here in this verse because he tears his clothes and goes into an emotional agony. Clearly, he did not know. It's not like he's acting now, like he's, he's suddenly devastated, whereas he did you know. No, he didn't know. So Ezra is there for four and a half months, and does he see the sin? No. Which means, can sin deceptively hide itself amongst otherwise faithful people? Yes, it can. And Matthew Henry said, for four and a half months, a man who knew his Bible extraordinarily well was teaching God's people for four and a half months, and he did not see it. He didn't see the sin. It had to actually be exposed by others and brought to his attention directly. And Matthew Henry said, how subtle, how, how crafty is the nature of sin? I mean, I know this is early to get into application, but here's an application point for all of us that you can see on the surface of this text. Is it possible to come to church and to be around Christians, and to look like everything in your life is going just right. It it is easy. Now listen, maybe you didn't grow up in church, and you don't quite know what all the mannerisms and all the language you're supposed to use. They call it Christianese, right? You may not speak Christianese just yet. Maybe you're new to the church. You don't quite get how it works. But if you've grown up in church, and you've been around for a while, you know how it is like. You know what it's like to say the right words, to look the right look, but inwardly your heart could be straying far from the Lord. So even in this moment, is that true of anyone in this room? If you were being honest, if people knew what was really going on in your heart, your mind this week, would you say, okay, if I was being honest, jealousy, coveting, lust, pride, ingratitude, bitterness, gossip, greed, hatred, materialism, worldly thinking, sinful comparison, it's going on inside my heart. I went to bed last night thinking about a sinful comparison, you might think, between me and someone else. Maybe there's jealousy in your heart. Whatever it may be, it can hide and we can look like everything's fine. It took four and a half months for Ezra to even see it, and it was only seen when it was brought directly out in front of him. Well, let's talk about what this problem is. Obviously, I mean, I think this is clear. Some people have taken this in a very wrong direction, that this is condemning interracial marriage or inter-ethnic marriage. That could not be further from the truth. Uh, that's, that's, that's not what the Scripture is teaching. What Scripture is teaching is not inter-ethnic marriage. Oh, my goodness. Uh, the Bible commends this all over the place. Uh, I mean, just look at the Bible. You've got, um, 
all kinds of examples. You've got uh, Moses marrying a Cushite woman. Uh, and, and he is actually mocked for marrying a woman of another ethnicity, and the Lord judges his sister Miriam, who mocks him for it in, in Numbers uh, chapter 12. Uh, Rahab, the prostitute, uh, she is welcomed into the people of God, even though she was from Jericho. She was a Canaanite, essentially. Uh, you have people like Ruth, the Moabite woman, who becomes the great-grandmother uh, of King David, and on and on and on. The Bible is not against that. Uh, even, in, even in Ezra, look back at Ezra chapter 6, verse 21, to, to show you what what uh, even Ezra himself is, is teaching here very clearly. Look at Ezra chapter 6, verse 21. It speaks about the Passover that the people ate. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Does that include non-Jewish people? You better believe it does. This is, the point here is not about marriage between different ethnicities. The point here is marriage between different religions. That's the point of this text, okay? If, if a Canaanite who is worshiping Baal and all the Canaanite gods worship, marries an Israelite man who is worshiping Yahweh, guess what their kids are going to do? They're going to worship Yahweh and Baal because mom worships Baal, dad worships Yahweh. The kids are going to be syncretists. They're going to be polytheists. They're going to worship all the different gods of their parents. And so this is not about ethnicity. It's about religious devotion. Of course, if, you, if you're Rahab and you leave the religion of your, uh, of your city and you join yourself to Israel and you worship Yahweh alone, you are welcome with open arms into the people of God. There is no problem. In Exodus 12, 38, when Israel left during the Exodus, it's, we are told that a mixed multitude also went up with the people. You know what the mixed multitude is? Those are non-ethnically Jewish people who joined themselves to Israel. These are probably some of the Egyptians. I mean, imagine this. Imagine you're an Egyptian, and you go through the ten plagues. And you're going, you know, our gods are not looking as strong as I once thought they were. And this Yahweh God seems to really have the upper hand. And what if you become a monotheist? What if you renounce all your Egyptian gods, and you see the plagues, and the Lord works in your heart, and you say, Yahweh is the only true God, and you join yourself to Israel? You are part of the people of God. And you can marry whoever you want within the people of God because it's about your religious devotion and commitment. That is clearly the case here in Ezra chapter 9 as well. We are told explicitly that they brought their abominations with them. And it refers to the Canaanites and others. Uh, the, the rule being referred to is Deuteronomy 7 verse 3. You shall not intermarry with the Canaanites, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. So again here, the issue is idolatry versus the pure devotion to God. During our summer series in Revelation, uh, we talked about the seven letters to the seven churches. And you may remember it spoke about um, the false teaching from Balaam that had crept into one or two of the churches. And you remember, Balaam failed to curse the people of God. You remember, because God turned his curse into a blessing in Numbers 22 to 24. Every time he was paid to curse Israel, he went up and he was about to curse, and then he opens his mouth and the Lord forced blessing to come out of his mouth. I love that. It's just a great, it just makes me smile. He says, I'm going to curse, okay, ready? I'm going to curse Israel. Here we go. A scepter will rise out of Israel. A star will come out of Jacob. Uh oh, he's predicting literally the Christmas story at this point. This is not good. So every time he tries to curse Israel, he starts predicting the coming of the Messiah, and it's just not working very well. And the king who hired him is going, what are you doing? And so Balaam says, okay. So Balaam tries a plan B. 
And plan B is successful. Do you remember what plan B was? He, he tried at first to curse Israel directly, but God did not let him do it, so he shifts to plan B. Remember what plan B was? Plan B is, okay, if I cannot curse them, I will get them to compromise on their own choice. You know what he's going to do? He sends pagan women who worship false gods into the camp. And listen to what happens. Numbers 25, listen to this. The people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifice to their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. And then later, Numbers 31, 16 says this. Behold, these women, the pagan women from Moab, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident at Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Have the people been clearly warned by the time you get to Ezra's day that intermarriage with those who are actively worshiping idols is going to lead to what? Disaster and judgment among the people. And this will be more of a topic for next Sunday, but I will just say this. I don't know if this applies to anyone right now in this room, I, I, but if it applies to anyone or anyone you know, this needs to be said so clearly. It's so basic, but it is so important. Hear me out here. Do not... Do not date or marry someone who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm saying this for God's glory, first of all, but second of all, for your own sake and for your children's sake. Because if you date and marry someone who does not love the Lord Jesus and worships a false god or has a false gospel or extraordinarily twisted theology, when you bring that person into marriage and you are in a covenant with them and then you have children, if that is what happens, there are going to be so many issues that are going to come about. Again, we'll talk more about this next Sunday. We'll talk about what if you already are married to an unbeliever. And Paul says, don't separate from that person. And he has a plan for that in 1 Corinthians. We'll talk about that next Sunday. But if you are single, looking to get married, if you find someone, I, listen, it doesn't matter how attractive you think that person is. It doesn't matter how much chemistry you think you have with that person, how much fun you have when you're around them. You are asking for lifelong trouble if you enter into a covenant with that person, if they reject the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord and treasure in their life. You do not know uh, what you are bringing into your life and home if you make that decision. So the Lord would say, marry whoever you want. 1 Corinthians 7, the end of the chapter says, marry whomever you wish, only in the Lord, only in the Lord. That's the advice Paul gives to widows. You can marry whoever you want, but they've got to be in the Lord Jesus. And that is for God's glory, but it is also for your good. Uh, we'll talk more about that again, Lord willing, next Sunday. Now, here's a point of application from Ezra here. Look, look at verse 3 through 5. I'm just going to read straight through these verses. Look at verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. We'll, st we'll stop there. You know, someone might hear about Ezra's response and say, Ezra, you are really overreacting to this. Okay, can I, can I put this, let's just put this in more, let me, let me give you some numbers to try to make this make sense. I, I spent a little moment counting the list of the names who intermarried in chapter 10. We have a fun list of names next week. I don't know how I'm going to get through it. I'm going to try. Okay, I, was, I counted them, just, by, by, just counted through them. And you have a little over 100 people who married uh, people pagan women from the area, okay, who worship false gods, a little over 100. I don't know the exact number, you could debate it, but it's maybe 115-ish people, okay? Now, how many returnees came with the first wave of exile? 50,000. How many just came with Ezra? About 5,000. 
and they've already had children. We, we could have 60 or 70,000 people or more now living in the land, Israelites living in the land. So let's just say it's 60,000 to be conservative. Let's say we've got 60,000 Israelites living in the Judea area, 60,000. How many of them have intermarried with pagan women? 115 or so. Ezra, you are really overreacting. We got 60,000 people. 100 have made a small compromise. They're still worshiping the Lord. They're going to still raise their children to worship Yahweh. You're sitting here tearing your clothes, acting like the world's coming to an end. You're fasting and praying and pleading. You're, you're acting like some terrible tragedy has taken place. Ezra, you are being legalistic. You're not being open-minded. You're being, frankly, bigoted in the way you're thinking about God's people. I don't think this is right. I don't think this is loving to those hundred people. What are you going to name them? You're going to put them out in public. You're going to name them. You're going to record their names in the Bible for people to talk about two and a half thousand years later. And Ezra says, yeah, yes, I am. I'm going to do all that. That's correct. Ezra, you're overreacting. Listen, Ezra is not uh, overreacting at this point. Ezra knows that this is like breaching a dam, right? The Proverbs talk about you let a little water through and then what happens? A lot more water and then a lot more and then eventually the dam falls down. How does all compromise happen amongst Christians? A little at a time. That's how compromise always starts. I remember hearing a seminary president who said, here's how compromise, here's how liberalism comes into a, say, a Baptist seminary. How, how does it happen? One seminary president said, here's how it happens. One seminary professor says, I don't think Peter really wrote 2 Peter. That's how it starts. How does, it, how does a seminary reject the inerrancy of the Bible? Here's how it starts. One professor says, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I, 2 Peter, I don't think Peter wrote it. And then they don't fire him. And then now you've got liberalism. Because what's that going to lead to? It's going to lead to, I don't think Paul wrote the pastoral epistles. I don't think he wrote 1, 2 Timothy and Titus. Okay, now what's happening to your New Testament? It's falling apart. And what are your future pastors being taught? Nonsense. And then what's going to happen? That seminary is going to keep drifting and drifting and drifting. I know, I know I've said this before. Liberalism always drifts to the left, but repentance happens in a moment, a jerk to the right. Okay? So what's happened is over the last 60 years, have the people of God been slowly compromising to the left. They've been moving towards compromise. Okay? And here's what happens. For 115 people to intermarry, does that mean a whole lot more people are implicated than 115 people? Because you've got families blessing those marriages. You've got father-in-laws. You've got mother-in-laws blessing those marriages. You've got all the bridesmaids and groomsmen, right? I mean, in using our language, who are participating in those marriages and blessing those marriages. Do you think one of those compromised marriages affects 100 people? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Do you see how this happens? And so for 60 years, the people are drifting into sin. And they don't even see it. They don't feel it. Nothing's happening in their mind. But Ezra, the second he hears about it, Ezra is broken. He has lost his appetite. He is weeping and wailing and calling out to God for help. And what happens? They're going to have a sudden correction of repentance that turns the ship dramatically the other direction in a moment, in a matter of months. There's going to be a massive correction that takes place. So here's my, my question here. If you're wondering about the time, I'm going to go through the next three points relatively quickly. Here's my point of application. And sincerely, sincerely. Um, maybe you're a morning person, maybe you're a night person. I'm a night person. My wife's a morning person. You, you, we've all got different personalities here. But whenever it is you spend time with the Lord, sincerely, do, do you feel a real ache and a burden for your own sins when you are before the Lord? A brokenness over your own sin first? I mean, how many times, this is off script here, but how many times? Is it 7.30 at night? It's teeth brushing time and bath time and all this stuff. How many times does my temper get too hot? 
happens regularly. My voice is too sharp with my kids. And then what do I do? I go upstairs after the kids go to bed. I say, Lord, please help me. Why do I keep losing my temper? Why do I keep raising my voice with my kids? God, help me to be patient. Help me to be gracious. I want them to see a genuinely, authentically Christian person. I don't want them to think dad's a hypocrite. I don't want them to think dad is fake. I want them to see the fruit of the Spirit in my life. I want to see that. And um, I heard a pastor who was 60 at the time look out at a crowd of guys in their 20s and 30s who were up and coming young guys in the ministry. And he said, he said, I'm 60. He said, most of you are around 30 years old. He said, you've got 30 years to plead with the Lord every morning of your life and every evening. Lord, please make me more humble. Make me more joyful. Make me more consistent with my walk. God, please help me to hate my sin first, to fight my sin first. But secondarily, are we burdened by the sins of those we love? I mean, I know people always make these analogies, so forgive me, but are are we more bothered when our favorite team loses than we are over the lostness and blindness of the people in our family and the people that we work with and the people that we care about, the spiritual blindness among them? Are we more emotionally troubled by our team losing than we are about the lostness of the person next door or the person that we work with at the desk over from us at work or the student that we sit next to? Is there an actual ache? Ezra had an ache, an overwhelming sorrow. And he took his appetite away. He didn't want to eat. Look at verse 4. Who gathers around him? By the way, he, he pulled his, his hair out and his beard, a sign of grief. That's what they did when someone died. It's like he's acting as though someone has died. That's how seriously he's taking it. Verse 4, Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. So who comes around Ezra? The people who tremble at the word of God. No doubt the word he's been teaching over the last four and a half months. They've been hearing it, and now they are trembling. They see the sin amongst the people, and they come before the Lord, and he is sitting appalled. Point two, Ezra confesses Israel's past sin. Verses 5 to 7. Verse 5, And at the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. You see how, okay, we are body and soul. Gnosticism was a false teaching in the early church that said your body and soul have nothing to do with each other. You can sin with your body, but your soul is not touched by your sin and all the kinds of things. No, is Ezra showing bodily the effects of what's going on in his soul? I mean, just look look at this. He's fasting, number one. Number two, he tears his clothes. Number three, he falls on his knees. Number four, he spreads out his hands. Number five, he blushes in his face. Is the agony of his soul showing itself in the way he's posturing, the way he's looking, what's going on with his physical body? Yes, and that will look different for different people, but his, it shows through his body. And he talks about the sins of Israel in the past. Now, just for the sake of time, I'm not going to recount all that right now. You know of Israel's past failure. Let's just go ahead and move to point number three. Verses eight and nine, Ezra confesses God's faithfulness. This is a moving section as well. Look at verse eight. Ezra says, but now... For a brief moment. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery 
but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Now, here is a really wonderful thing to do in our lives. Ezra recounts God's past and present faithfulness to him and, and the people. And this is something that I know that many of you do this. We need to do this all, uh, continually. Here are eight things. You don't have to write these down. These are just the eight things he mentions. Two of them are the same. Okay, he mentions one thing twice. Here are the eight things. He mentions that God has given them a remnant. So God hasn't destroyed the people. A secure hole, literally a tent peg is the actual Hebrew, a, a, a nail, a peg in the ground, which is probably referring to the temple. It's like a tent peg in the ground, a, a secure hold. Number three, he's brightened their eyes. Number four, he's given some reviving. Number five, he's not forsaken us. Number six, he's extended steadfast love. Number seven, he's given, again, some reviving. And number eight, he's allowed us to set up the temple or the house. Okay, how do we apply this to our lives? If you know the Lord, recite in your own mind when you're before the Lord, God's past faithfulness in your life. Isn't it a powerful thing to do that? You can think about circumstantial things, like even physical and circumstantial blessings, family and friends and health and things like that. That's wonderful. Don't miss those. But also, more importantly, the spiritual blessings. Having been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, having been regenerated by God, by His sovereign grace in our life, forgiven of all of our trespasses, having His Son intercede for us, having His Son atone for us, having eternal riches in Christ for all of eternity that we will enjoy. All this is true, and to remind us of God's incredible grace, and it will make our sin all the more heinous and all the more unthinkable in our, in our eyes. Now, can I just add this? Don't think of hating sin mainly as a legal thing, like sin is bad, and, and think of it legally. No, think of how sweet God's mercy is to you, and therefore how unthinkable it is to dishonor the God who's given you that mercy. That's the way to think about why we hate our sin. It's not because I'm a better Pharisee than you are, or you're a better legalist than I am. No, it's God's grace is so sweet and glorious to us when we recount it in our own mind. How could I dishonor a God of grace like this? How could I possibly offend a God of mercy like this? That's the way Ezra is thinking here. That's how we should think about our sin. All right, point number four. Ezra confesses Israel's current sin in verses 10 and following. Let's look at this. Look at verse 10. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? I, I just, let me stop here. I want you to notice as I read this, does Ezra give even the beginning of a hint of an excuse? There is no excuse making whatsoever. In fact, this, this, you may not even notice this when you first read this prayer. Technically speaking, did you know this? Ezra gives zero requests. He doesn't even ask for mercy. It's implied, obviously, that's why he's praying, but Ezra is so humbled, he doesn't even ask for mercy. He just says at the end of the prayer, look at the very last verse, verse 15, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. End of prayer. He just says, listen, God, if you were to deal with us just in justice, we would be gone we're just sitting here in our guilt. We need help, please. But there is no even real request. He just sits there in God's presence and says, none can stand before you because of this. Look back at verse 11. He talks about his commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, now he has a little quote here, verses 11 and 12. 
The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat of the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Now, if you look on the screen here, you're not going to be able to read it. I just want you to see this, okay? It's okay if you can't read it. What you will notice here is on this side are the statements we just read from verses 11 and 12. Okay, you see that? That's the prayer he just prayed right there. 11 and 12 are on the left side of the screen. You see what's on the right side of the screen? Those are all the verses that Ezra is paraphrasing as he prays those two verses. Now, I, I kid you not. I mean, there's at least, I think, like, I don't know how many uh, I wrote down. Uh, I don't know if I have the number here. He, he, it's over a dozen references to Scripture. Now, here's why I put that on the screen. Ezra is so soaking with Scripture. He's so saturated with the Bible that when he goes to pray, his sentences come out as paraphrases of previous Scripture. And almost every phrase in verses 11 and 12 is a paraphrase of earlier Scripture. Are we told that Ezra knew the Bible? That he studied it, he obeyed it, he knew how to teach it. When Ezra goes to pray, his prayers are Bible-shaped. They're influenced by the very language of Scripture. So, so here's a challenge to me, to you. Are our prayers, don't be intimidated by this if you say, hey, I'm a new Christian, I don't know much about Scripture, I'm just learning the, the ropes here, that's fine, that's fine. I'm not demanding anything of, of you, but, but just, just listen. A goal we should have as we mature as Christians, all of us, should be what? That our prayers sound biblical. I don't mean we show off our Bible knowledge when we pray. That's a danger. Okay, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking our, our categories, our terms, the kinds of things we emphasize are shaped by Scripture. And when you look, just as, a, as an experiment, some of you have actually done this in a Bible study, I believe, a book called Praying with Paul by Don Carson goes through all of Paul's prayers. But if you look at Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, you know, all Paul's prayers that are inspired. Do you know how many times Paul is praying for the change for a change in the circumstances of the people he's praying to. It's virtually never. You know what Paul's praying for? I pray that you would abound in knowledge and wisdom. I pray that God would give you his spirit, that he would enlighten the eyes of your heart, that you might know the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints, that his great power for those who believe. I pray that you would know the love of God that's beyond knowledge. I pray that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment, etc., etc. Paul's prayers are soaked with what? biblical language of love and growth in holiness and growth in godliness and growth in our knowledge and growth in ability to better love others. And this is where we need to test ourselves. Am I mainly praying for like a sick list, right? Like, you know, we take prayer requests. Well, aunt so-and-so is sick and, and my uncle's having surgery this week and, you know, pray for this. It's not wrong to pray for those things. I don't want to minimize that. I think you should pray for those things. I'm not making fun of that. But do you see where the problem comes in? If 95% of my prayers are the sick list and 5% are spiritually focused primarily, is that biblical, the balance? No. Paul has rare prayers about circumstances. The majority, the vast majority, is for the spiritual growth and sanctification of those he loves. So Ezra's prayer is steeped in Scripture. We need to let our terminology, our emphasis, the way we pray to be so informed by Scripture from our study of it that it, we, we pray biblical prayers in the way that we speak. All right, let's look here at, I, I want you to flip with me real quick. Let's flip to, hold your spot and turn with me to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. Psalm 
And I'm going to read a few verses starting at verse 34. You can see how applicable this is to our text, but listen to these words. Psalm 106, verse 34. Referring to Israel, it says, They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, the peoples of the land, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times, many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Let me ask you, do you see the character of God in this text? And do you see the character of his people? What are we doing? We're bent in the wrong direction. The people keep going back to their idols. And what does God keep doing? He continues to lavish them with love and mercy. He's faithful to his covenant and he wins them back to himself. One last time, flip with me back to Ezra 9. And we'll move to a conclusion here. I want to mention one thing I hadn't mentioned so far. Look back at verse 2. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the, you see this, the holy race has mixed itself, literally the holy offspring or the holy seed. That phrase, holy seed, I believe it's only used one other time in the Old Testament. I could be wrong. I think it's only one other time. Don't turn to these, just I don't have time, but I'll just, I'll mention them. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord high on his throne, Isaiah falls on his face, the coal, the live coal is put against his lips, his sin is taken away, his guilt's atoned for, and then what does the Lord say? Who will go for us? Who, who will speak? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And Lord says, okay, you're going to speak until the people don't listen and the people are judged by Assyria. And God describes Israel with a metaphor. He says, the people are like a forest and God is going to bring the Assyrians in and later the Babylonians to cut down the trees. Do you get this? It's a picture of devastating the people, sending them into exile. And there's this amazing verse at the end of Isaiah 6. What are we told? We're told... After the trees have been cut down, there's going to be a stump left. And it says this, the holy seed, same phrase from Ezra, the holy offspring, the holy people, the holy seed, the holy seed is the stump. Now, we know because we know what happens, where this is going, but imagine reading that for the first time. Okay, God's going to cut down all the trees. We're going to be judged like a, like a metaphor of a forest being cut down. Israel's going to be sent into exile. Are we without hope for the future? No. God says, I'm going to preserve a holy seed in a stump. So where is this metaphor going? You go forward, Isaiah chapter 11. Here's what we're told. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's David's dad. So David's kingdom has been all but destroyed. The trees have been cut down. There is no reigning Davidic king. 
Assyria is in control, then Babylon, then Persia. There is no reigning king uh, for David right now. Zerubbabel was not a reigning king, and currently there's no reigning king in Israel. So what do we see? We see the stump of Jesse, like a felled tree. It's just a stump sitting there, and the Lord says, listen, I know it may look hopeless, but do not sell me short. I will keep my covenant with David. There is going to come forth a shoot out of the stump of Jesse. And maybe you've had this experience. You've seen a felled tree somewhere, and have you seen a sprout coming up out of what looks like an otherwise dead stump? It's an amazing thing. Every once in a while, you see a little sprout coming up out of a stump there on the ground. And later, here's what we're told, Isaiah 11:10. in that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the people and the nations shall inquire and his resting place will be glorious. It's the Messiah. The spirit of God will rest on him. And here's what we find out in Isaiah chapter 53. Now, I hope we all know Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Do you remember what we're told? There's going to be a root and a stump. And here's what we find, Isaiah 53, for he, the Messiah, the suffering servant, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root, same word used earlier, a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So is there a shoot coming up out of the stump of Jesse, out of David's family? Yes, there's this unpromising beginning, this little root out of dry ground, this little shoot out of the stump of Jesse. And what's, what is he going to do? You, you know all these verses, but just hear them again. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When Ezra prayed, had Ezra committed the sin of intermarriage? No. He had no guilt in this, right? He had done nothing wrong. And yet, what does Ezra say over and over and over in the prayer? We have sinned. We have broken faith. Our iniquities have stacked up to the heavens. We, we, we. How could a man who has not sinned in this way say we have sinned in this way? And the answer is he's a priest, and he stands in place before God for the people. And their sins, in some sense, are his sins. He represents the people. But oh, how much does he point forward to this shoot from the stump of Jesse? Even though Jesus is entirely without sin, he will bear our iniquities in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Jesus truly does say, I will take their sin onto me, although I've never sinned, because I will make my people right before God, because I am the true high priest. I'm the better Ezra, who represents the people of God before the face of God. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, in the Psalms it says, if you, O Lord, should keep a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. God, I pray that you would help that to be so true to us that we would realize if you were to mark iniquity, None of us could stand before you. But with you through Jesus, there is forgiveness. And therefore, we have a truly reverential awe and fear of you for the ability to forgive us of all of our sin. God, I pray as we sing now that you'd be at work and be honored. In Jesus' name, amen.